You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating with Rachel Heinemann. I'm a licensed mental health counselor and certified eating disorder specialist. On this weekly podcast, we talk about all things psychoanalysis and eating disorder recovery. It's a combination of interviews with experts in psychoanalysis and eating disorders and some solo episodes where it will just be the two of us. The goal of the podcast is to help you try to understand a little bit more about yourself, gain a deeper understanding for why you do the things you do, and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. This is episode 104 with Jessica Brown. Today's episode is part of the series that I've been bringing to you. Maybe I haven't like asterisked them as a series, but a series of conversations that are full of nuance and being in the gray area as opposed to the way that the therapy nutrition space and the eating disorder recovery world has really created an environment that, from my perspective, has been kind of black or white, either with us or against us. And something that we talk about in the episode that we've been noticing is that a lot of the features from diet culture that we absolutely hate about it are actually showing up in the anti-diet culture. And I'm not saying that this is every single person who practices from an anti-diet perspective, obviously not. I'm part of that community. And I really hope that I don't do this kind of thing, but that a lot of the traits that we really hate on the quote other side have really been adopted in within this community. And there's a lot of shaming going on, a lot of with us or against us, a lot of judgment. And I think what we risk when we engage in these types of almost cult behaviors is that people tend to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And that we can't really tease apart what's actually been really, really beneficial in this movement and with social justice and what's been actually kind of harmful and really just repeating the cycle that we really, really hate. A little bit about Jessica. Jessica has been a clinical nutritionist for over 20 years and is the author of the book, The Loving Diet. By the way, The Loving Diet is how she's known. So that's her website, her social media, all The Loving Diet. She's a graduate of Stanford University's year-long applied compassion teacher training program. And that's where she'll talk a little bit more about this when we talk, where she explores how self-compassion can really increase interoceptive awareness. And she'll also talk about that specific piece a little bit later in the conversation, especially with people with disordered eating. Right now, she's known for her eight-week self-compassion online group for disordered eating. But what really what I love about our conversation and about Jessica's take is that it is so full of nuance and respect and curiosity. So (laughs) if I'm not beating a dead horse here, my favorite ideas, my favorite words, nuance, curiosity, these are all the things that are really, really important if we're going to A, heal our relationship with food, B, start connecting, which obviously is interconnected with healing our relationship with food, you know, just living in a better world where we are respectful and we are open We can for sure disagree. That's totally fine. We're not even expecting everybody to agree, but that we have to do it in a really respectful way. So sure, we'll be calling out some behaviors and I'm sure you have some reactions. And if you have those reactions or when you have those reactions, please share them with me. The point of this and the rest of the episodes, particularly within this kind of non-series, 
is that it's really the beginning, beginning of conversations and not at all the end. So there's obviously so much more to say. This is a starting board and I'm out from the woodworks. Let me know you exist. I'm so appreciate that you already have done that, some of you. And I know the rest of you have so many more thoughts. So let me know what they are. And uh, here's my conversation with Jessica. All right. So excited to do this. As promised, deliver on what we were talking about, about engaging in much more nuanced conversation about what's going on in our world, about diet culture, anti-diet culture, how it's been impacting people, and really giving voice to the opinions that are a little bit more gray and not necessarily the loudest, just to create a lot more nuance and curiosity, which are obviously two of my favorite words. I'm getting boring at this point, but thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk about this topic because I think a lot of people are speaking about it, maybe behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think not necessarily recorded. So thanks for going on the record. (laughs) I'm like all fancy as if I'm a journalist. Thanks for going on the record. But I think, you know, mainly what we wanted to get at, and, and of course, there are so many different details about how this is happening and how it's been impacting people. But the idea of we work in this space of treating eating disorders and disordered eating and just healing relationships with food. And there's sort of like this culture and community that has created itself in terms of like the intuitive eating movement and the eating disorder clinicians and the anti-diet or whatever they call anti-wellness culture at this point. And I think in the beginning, or at least the original values or whatever mission statement is absolutely beautiful because they were the first of their kind. And they're just sort of introducing this new idea about what diets do to people and rigidity and inflexibility and restriction. And now things are changing, you know, within the anti-diet culture. So I was wondering if we could just sort of start out with your experience and your perception of what's been, and yeah, your experience and perception of what's been going on in our culture and our community right now. So I started out as a clinical nutritionist, working with people on restrictive diets to help with their autoimmune disease. And it was pretty much just a few months in that people started developing really crazy, severe disordered eating and eating disorders. And so I pulled back. I became public about it. I got banned out of the entire movement for saying restrictive diets are causing disordered eating. We need to take a closer look at each person's experience before we recommend them going on a restrictive diet. Wait, which community were being from first? The autoimmune paleo diet community. Okay. So now you're on the outs on community number one. Great. Start over. (laughs) that we should screen people because think about what happens when you get diagnosed with a disease that could potentially kill you. Every bite matters. Every bite, you could inadvertently make yourself have a flare, put yourself in the hospital at the very worst scenario, kill yourself. So people were going in with these restrictive diets with these really, really disabling emotional subset of pressure on themselves to perform well doing the diet. And I was like, yeah, we got to stop people. This is not working. Even if there's good parts of ways that people might be eating, it was just creating too much dysregulation. 
I created my own self-compassion program for eating as a result of, I, I didn't know where to send people. They didn't really have maybe a full-blown eating disorder. They had disordered eating. It's like they needed to understand what it was about their illness that was causing them to restrict so much. And so I really developed my own program over the last almost five years now because I, I needed it for my own client population. And so now I've sort of gone to the other side and starting to see now that a lot of the same approaches of you're doing it wrong in the restrictive diet movement are now sort of surfacing on social media with the anti-diet movement. So I think that's what we're going to be talking and unpacking a little bit more. Yeah. So maybe we can even start with some examples just so that people have a little bit more context of what that even means. About what they're seeing with the anti-diet movement? Yeah, that they're kind of doing the same thing. So let's say somebody has uh, multiple sclerosis and the first thing that they do in order to handle their fear is they say, I'm going to do as much as I can possibly do to make sure that I get myself out of an MS flare. But what's really going in is they're going in with something maybe emotional or behavioral that's driving a lot, which is my body betrayed me or I did something to cause this. All of the things that I see in the restrictive diet movement really kind of fed into that. So this pressure. Now working in this world, I'm seeing a lot of the same things, which is there's something, some kind of behavior that I'm doing that's wrong. So we look at it in the restrictive diet movement, it's there's something wrong. I'm wrong. I did something wrong. I caused this. And then there's another sort of wrongness that's coming forward in the anti-diet movement, which is now it's wrong to perhaps diet in any way or go on any kind of restrictive diet or have any kind of intentional weight loss. And so what I've heard, by the way, my clients were the ones who told me that they are experiencing this. And so what's happening is, is we're sort of shrinking the area of our ability to learn and experience as humans, depending on what you align with. Okay. So number one is that people are being told that they're doing eating disorder recovery, disordered eating recovery, or intuitive eating wrong. And then what ends up happening, perhaps second, is that they throw the baby out with the bathwater. I'm doing it wrong. Well, screw this. And then the same sort of thing happens where there's no gray area. There's no, let me try to see what works for me. It's just sort of like either it works or it doesn't work. There's almost a certain rigidity about how it's going to go, which then impacts people if it doesn't seem to go as it's quote supposed to go. Yeah. We can even say, what is that wrong? How are we defining the wrong message that people are getting in the anti-diet movement? I'll tell you what my clients tell me. If you go on a diet for your own personal reasons, whatever those reasons are, and you go online, the anti-diet movement is saying that you're following diet culture. Following diet culture now has uh, really negative side effects when we look at it's considered to be sort of like a moral failing. Diet culture doesn't have your best interests in mind. Diet culture is... Uh, depending on who you talk to, hurt, harming, hurting, brainwashing, controlling, 
And so anytime you are buying into anything that diet culture is saying, it has a really negative connotation that you're following a movement that is harming other people. And that's the part that I feel like is important to say is sort of make that definition a little bit more clear. It's like, oh my gosh, now I'm doing that. I'm Now I'm doing something else wrong. I was wrong when I was restricting right. my food. And now I'm wrong again because I'm really upset with how I look and I want to try something out. Now, I'm not saying that diet culture is good for us. It isn't. We know diets don't work. But we're talking about this nuanced area and this conversation about how do we build wisdom? And I really ask myself this question of all of the brilliant people in the anti-diet movement, all of the amazing intuitive eating dietitians that we see who have written books and have big followings. How did they come to find out that diet culture didn't work? They probably experienced a whole bunch of diets and came to the conclusion of like, it didn't work. And now women are being robbed essentially of having that experience that built all that wisdom for people now who are intuitive eating dietitians or, you know, people who are anyway, anyone in the movement who aligns with how damaging diet culture has been probably happened because of a lot of experience. And this is where we want to say that we're talking about disordered eating. We're not talking about eating disorders because people with eating disorders should absolutely have help navigating this field in this world. Yeah. I mean, really everybody deserves help. And I think that when we talk about this also like another disclaimer, I think we're really focusing more on the culture that's been created around all of this phenomenal help that's been really abundant these days. And so the actual movement and the treatment and the counseling that's been going on is incredible. A lot of this is really, I hate to say it, but happening on social media and which is a world in and of itself, which then bleeds over to the real world. Not that social media is not real, but you know what I mean? Yeah. And so it's much more about this relational piece of how it's turned us against each other and how it's really created a culture that not necessarily mimics, but definitely has a lot of negative features of a culture we're so, so badly trying to run away from. Yeah. And you even alluded to it, like this idea of, attaching someone's morality to their food choice that, you know, we're trying to run away from that. We're not trying to say, oh, you're bad for eating this. But now we're saying you're bad for doing this, for wanting this. And then there's a certain level of like shaming and often publicly that happens. And I think what you're saying is let somebody, not necessarily suffer, but like let somebody be in their experience of disordered eating, let them see they're obviously like working through some stuff. They're not a bad person. I mean, this sounds so crazy to say they're not a bad person for struggling right now. Yeah. When 90% of women are unhappy with their bodies, a lot of experimentation is going to go on to try to figure out how to be happy with their bodies. And there's a lot of againstness that's happening now on both sides. So there's a lot of againstness and this is really what we're talking about because I work in the world of self-compassion and self-compassion is really meets you where you're at. It says, oh my gosh, I'm struggling, but I believe that I can be with myself struggling. Self-compassion really actually heals shame 
and more than self-confidence. And so I've found it to be a really viable path in this world of againstness of like, you're wrong if you do it like this. You're wrong if you do it like that. And why is this happening? Why do we feel like now all of a sudden there's a lot of rhetoric about needing to protect yourself against diet culture? Like the diet culture is evil and it's going to come get you. And it's like, oh my gosh, should we be focusing on a fortification, a psychological fortification of protecting against evil? Or should we be focusing on increasing inner resilience so that when young girls go out and they get exposed to diet culture, they have the tools to not feel like they need to protect themselves against it, but rather believe in themselves and the inner strength that they have to choose in a way that works for them. Yeah. I think also the danger in creating this villain called diet culture is that anybody who then carries the message of diet culture, whether it's intentional or not. I I think that that is different, you know, somebody carrying it intentionally versus just a product of society. They get the horns. I'm thinking of like, you know, the emoji that's like purple and has those like ears, (laughs) like the villain. And they get pointed as the villain. And again, like just to reiterate, the people who are intentionally going out there and promoting restrictive diets probably should think a little bit more about the science behind it and that it doesn't work, you know, all the messages that they're sending. Yeah. But for sure, the people who are not in that position, and they're just a product of learning all this stuff, a product of our society, we also say they're the villain. Well, think about how we do learning that's separate than diet. How do we learn to become a really great manager in a job? We have experience how do we learn how to be in healthy relationships? Well, we probably have a couple of bad ones along the way. Like we build that kind of experience. And I think that learning how to be, find peace in our bodies, which for me is different than finding happiness, is a lifelong journey that we should embrace and welcome and learn how to deeply care for ourselves in the process with helpers along the way. And so now we're seeing this huge debate and you've talked about it on your podcast about ultra processed foods and like all of these factors that are sort of feeders into how we're able to make decisions about what works best for us. And so the conversation continues. (laughs) Well, so let's talk about that for a second. If you have any more info, because I think that that's not a debate that's ever going to be solved. Not ever, but it's not going to be the kind of thing where we get to an answer, what would you say? Well, one of the principles of intuitive eating is that there's no good or bad foods. And remember when we used to hear about that principle with cigarettes, cigarettes companies used to tell us that there is nothing bad about their cigarettes and that they're not addictive. And we knew that they were lying, but it took years and huge court battles and the government to step in to figure that out. When I discovered that most of the ultra processed food companies have until recently been owned by tobacco companies. I took pause, you know, it's like, wow, tobacco companies lied to us once. Why wouldn't they lie to us again? Wait, are you saying that a lot of like the companies that, that sell us food that's stocked in our local, whatever grocery we shop at, those are really tobacco companies selling to us? Yes, until I think 2017, like Philip Morris owned Kraft and General Foods. 
and R.J. Reynolds owned Del Monte and Nabisco. Interesting. And when we look at ultra-processed foods and the bliss point created by tobacco companies to keep people wanting to eat the foods to impact the introceptive awareness or like the signaling in the brain about how hungry or full you are. And when we look at, we're just women trying to figure out how to eat every day and we're trying to follow our satiety signals And we have companies that are purposely making factory food that could impact that. I think that's worth taking a look at. So just to clarify, I don't know if this is a yes or no question, but would you say that there are good and bad foods? I think that factory foods are on the whole, not good for us because it lacks fiber. Okay. So here's a question based on this information. As somebody might be listening and they either have a history of eating disorder or disordered eating. Maybe they're in the beginning, they're in the throes of a relapse or they're just living in our world. I'm thinking about how they potentially could receive the information and say, aha, so there are good and bad foods. And therefore I'm going to continue doing what I'm doing and be afraid of the bad foods because they're terrible for us because they're owned by the tobacco companies and they're trying to kill us or at least interfere with our satiety, which you know, will then interfere with the rest of us, our metabolic functioning or everything. And so obviously we have to be very careful based on how even potentially true information, meaning even if it's true information, then we have to know how does it impact people? So if somebody does have that background, then how do they make sense of that information without falling down the rabbit hole that inevitably happens when they hear a piece of information like that? Yeah, I think it's sort of like the merging of common sense and looking at the science, which is if you eat a diet that's primarily ultra-processed food, you might run into some problems. But should we say you should never eat it? Gosh, no. I mean, we we live in a world where most of the grocery store is filled with shelf-stable food. And this isn't also to say, because I see this argument kind of coming up that Ultra-processed foods are shelf-stable, they're fortified, and they're affordable. Yeah, they are. Like those things are totally true. And so I'm not arguing that at all. I'm just saying over time, we have had an increase in some pretty serious metabolic diseases. And we've had an increase in a lot of these foods. Maybe we're eating a little too much of them. Maybe the American diet is lost its way. So you're saying, based on the fact that they seem narrow, uh, parallel in almost in, in terms of history, it almost seems impossible that one doesn't at least correlate heavily with the other. Yeah. Unless you're saying something more than that. I'd say, you know, we look at what's the American diet. The standard American diet now is over 60% ultra processed foods. When we look at something that we're all trying to do that has like such great bones in theory. So intuitive eating is so amazing in theory, but it's built on introceptive awareness, which is when you intuitively eat, it leans into this idea that you want to know if you're hungry or you're full, which is the fantastic way to look at things. And what we know is, is that Certain things in our life can affect introceptive awareness. Ultra-processed foods is one of them. Because of the bliss point, it makes you more hungry and it bypasses those satiety cues or the hunger hormones, leptin and ghrelin. 
but so do other things like menopause, hormone events, chronic illness, medicines, being neurodivergent, all of those things really impact interoceptive awareness as well. And so I look at ultra processed foods as one wheel in the cog that makes intuitive eating more challenging when we start to look at all of the things going on that impact our hunger and our satiety cues. Yeah, I think it gets really tricky when we talk about specific numbers and the basically we're endorsing the idea of balance, which ultimately we really do want people to work toward this idea of balance. But when you use the word balance as it associates with food, almost always it's cover for I'm going to limit the fun foods. I'm going to limit whatever these foods are that are quote bad for me. So like, let's be real when we talk and and use semantics, et cetera. But I guess when we're talking about the ultra processed foods and what might be behind it, and even, you know, as trying to provide some sort of reassurance for someone who will take that information and say, well, I can't have this and say, well, no, we're just saying, don't only eat this. Exactly. I can imagine that they're like, well, hold on a second. I already had 60% of my diet today of ultra processed foods. And perhaps for whatever reason, that might actually be the case. And now I can't have it and insert limitation in my brain. And then we have this whole spiral. I mean, I know people's brains are so super creative with how they create rules that I guess now I'm thinking as I'm talking out loud, I wonder if the push for no good or bad foods, this is totally fine. All this like really knocking what we're saying to the ground and just saying absolutely not is really because a brain that has been so immersed in disordered eating will literally catch on to anything that endorses anything about health or weight yeah. or anything good, bad. And they will say, aha. So we can talk for 30 minutes right now. And all they'll say is, yeah, they said that ultra processed foods is owned by tobacco companies and I can never have it again. Or if I have it, I'll have it like maybe one, right. one time a day, I'll have like a candy bar. And like, that's the extent of it, which is it's so dangerous in and of itself. Then you, then, then you just have your eating disorder forever. Yeah. We're not saying that. And really you're bringing up such a great point, which is it's usually hard things that have happened to people earlier in their life that make this, I'm safe. If I follow this rule-based, whatever it is that we just said is the real root cause. You know, it's someone being traumatized as a child and thinking they're worthless or thinking that they're unlovable, that's really feeding into their lifestyle choices. There is a really cool, on a Brene Brown podcast, I heard her mention this book called Change or Die. Have you heard of that book? Mm -mm, But I love Brene Brown. (laughs) Brene's cool. And she mentioned the book. And so I was like, oh, well, I'm going to just go get it. Obviously, she's like the best influencer (laughs) in the world. (laughs) And especially she talks about shame. And so the book was called Change or Die. And it's by Alan Dushman. And he had the most interesting thing that I thought was sort of related to what we're talking about. He looked at people who are diagnosed with cardiovascular disease that had a heart event where their cardiologist said, if you don't change your life, you're going to die. Like their heart disease was progressed enough so that they were on their way to dying. And they looked at who changes. 90% of all people, according to the studies he got for his book, 90% of everybody who was diagnosed with 
life-threatening cardiovascular disease, please change your life, which didn't mean just change your diet. It means reduce your stress, have happier relationships. Food was just one part of it. 90% of people made no changes at all. Which also brings us to this bigger thing, which is I think that people reach for diets as low-hanging fruit because they don't understand how to make real change in their life. And we encounter so much discomfort and pain when we do it because we have to look at the core things that we believe about ourselves that are driving the reason why we go on diets anyway. Totally. That's such a good point because whenever we talk about relationship with food, we circle around the food, around the food, around the food. And for the most part, anybody that I've spoken to, especially medical practitioners who are sort of not directly in the Hayes anti-diet community, some of them are, but some of them are just sort of like adjacent. When they say, quote, healthy behaviors is, you know, get better sleep and maybe take a walk around the block once a day and maybe eat a couple of vegetables if you don't ever have them. Yeah. Ever. And these are all like just a couple of examples of things and reduce your stress. I mean, like, come on, that's not a small thing. That's not like a, oh, I can just change my breakfast and therefore I'm less stressed. Yep. We're talking about like literally every part of your life and perhaps investing in therapy and and investing more in so many different aspects of your life. Yeah. Yeah. I would prefer to change my breakfast than that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because it's low-hanging fruit. Yeah. Yeah. So I think what's so like scary about the place that we're at is that at the end of the day, so many of us, I don't want to say hundred percent because I haven't taken a tally, but so many of us agree on so many things. And yet you're ousted from like basically every community. I mean, not every single one. I hope not, but you're just, you're kind of like, no, you say the word weight loss, like, oh, we can't talk to you. Yeah. And so like, it's just, it's kind of sad and and scary and also like really frustrating that the messages are being lost based on these cultural changes. Yeah. There's a big emphasis on being happy. And so first the message was when you're thin, you'll be happy. And then there's another message, which is when you're bigger, you'll be happy. And I remember my husband and I were walking the dog and he said to me just really casually. And he's like, you must really be happy with your body because look at the work that you do and the world that you live in. And I was like, I haven't been happy with my body for one day. There isn't one day in my entire life that I have said, wow, I won the lottery. My body is exactly the way that I want it to be. But what I have found is peace which I feel like is an unconditional willingness to be with the parts of myself that are really upset that I didn't get the body that I wanted or that I don't need to find happiness, that peace is a deeper peace, which allows for experimentation. It allows for experience. It allows, it says, I believe in myself enough that I can be with myself struggling or suffering. And I feel like on both sides now there is the unwillingness for all humans really to, because we don't teach it, of how to be with ourselves, struggling. Yeah. I think, you know, going back to the part we were talking about shaming and, and to a certain extent, like it almost gets to like a bullying place, especially on social media Yeah, where there are, are, I mean, there are definitely a lot of pretty bad messages going out, especially from celebrities who are 
talking about what I eat in a day and things like that. But it just, it feels, I guess that I don't really know any other way to say it, but it feels so low to get down and like really just bully this person and say like, they're terrible for this reason. And they're saying this and ha ha ha. And what was that video like with Gwyneth Paltrow or something talking about her IV and everyone was like really jumping on it. And to a certain extent, like, yes, we need to call out this message that this is totally unhealthy. Please don't do it just because she's doing like, this is, this is like where you get help. Please don't do it. But the way people were doing, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So people reached out to me that day when Gwyneth Paltrow was interviewed on a podcast, basically saying, I don't even remember the exact thing, but it was like bone broth for lunch and like not a real meal till dinner. And so of course, like my phone lit up that day, but my own personal thing was like, you know what? That was such an unproductive thing that you mentioned that, but you don't deserve to be attacked. Like we've lost compassion in this world of she might really silently struggle with disordered eating or maybe even an eating disorder. And we don't know, you know, it's the same thing about that whole almond mom thing that you and I sort of touched on, which is putting people down in order to get your point across is really lost the point. Because what we do know is that humans, for the most part, all suffer and we're all working through our own stuff. Now, if you have a public platform and your whole job is to teach this, again, like I felt like that was a really bad teaching moment. But again, I don't think that she deserves to be publicly humiliated and attacked because it basically makes everybody in the field of health and eating look bad when you publicly shame other people for being on diets or losing weight. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't address the huge cultural issue that we're facing, but calling out individuals. Okay, so let me take devil's advocate just for a second, because now I'm thinking about how it played out. You know, we're sort of doing the same thing now. I Let me know if it is, because obviously our whole point is not to do that. But she's a celebrity. A lot of people know who she is. And I mean, that's the whole idea. If somebody is really, really well-known and they're promoting messages that we know people are going to hear. And some people, I'm really hoping a lot of people can listen to that or watch them. And they're like, oh yeah, that's like probably not so good for like, that's not really any food. And hopefully they can use their critical thinking and be like, okay, yeah. But there are so many people that were probably really impacted by that. And perhaps maybe their food and and for sure their relationship with food was impacted. And so on behalf of those people, I wonder if going the nth degree to really zero in on the message and not just be all kumbaya, compassionate, oh, we love her and she's really struggling, but maybe it's a little bit harmful, might not have driven the message home loud enough for the people who were actually really impacted, which then would put me in a position to be like, well, I don't know. Then what What do we do with that? <laughs> yeah, I would say it was not a good educational message. It was not productive. It did not further humanity. In fact, it might've put us back a few notches, but again, attacking her as a person, I just, I feel like even people who we really disagree with, we can acknowledge the, that, everyone messes up and that that was not a good journalistic moment. Yeah. Perhaps putting the onus more on the, on the media 
the people who give platform for it, not necessarily the person who is really, for lack of a better term, suffering because they are. I would imagine that she is suffering and we just don't see it because she has an empire that she's built, but that she has feelings just like everybody else. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about this one. I think that celebrities have, whether deliberately or not, basically chosen another path than than yeah. somebody who's outside of the spotlight. And I think it's it's really tricky. Yeah. It's not the same. Well, I don't know. We could talk about Brene Brown being keto. <laughs> and, oh, is she? <laughs> yeah. And she's come out and says that it's part of her addiction recovery. So she's a recovering alcoholic and that her being keto is really instrumental to her having long-term recovery. People aren't going after her. I mean, and keto is like pretty darn restrictive. Hold on a second. You're saying that she has said this publicly. I love how I don't know this information, but I just said I love Bernie Brown. Maybe ignorance is bliss, but yep. nobody has said anything about that. I mean, you could Google it and pull up the podcast where she talks on, I've heard her on two podcasts talking about how she's keto. Yes. And so why would people not go after her? Why would you go after Brene Brown? <laughs> so, you know, you pose a really interesting question. I was actually just talking about this with a colleague the other day, and it's been an ongoing conversation with so many different colleagues. I think that this might be helpful for this part of the conversation in that the idea of tone and attitude really impacting the delivery of a message. So I was just saying how competitiveness is obviously really prevalent in this community. People talk about comparison all day, especially about body image and and other things too. And this is the the thing I was talking about with some colleagues is that it's so intertwined with how a message is delivered, whether that's on social media, so it's not actually a voice, it's just some words, or somebody's talking to you. Is there a haughtiness attached to it? Is there this like either unintentional or unconscious um, trying to get something out of it? Is there a lot of detail that's implying they're opening up to a lot more scrutiny for the implicit messages. But I guess I wonder if there's something about the delivery of a message, especially in the what I eat in a day, which is basically to say, I'm better than you. You can all do what I do and look like me, but you don't. And therefore you just suck. Um, There's actually, it's funny. I follow a few people on Instagram that do this kind of thing. And just because I get a kick out of it, basically making fun of influencers. It's really funny. And this idea of, I'm just going to show you like what I went to the department store and got like really, really expensive. And this thing was like actually on sales, only $2,500. Like you guys probably can't afford it. I'm twirling my hair, everybody. It's just like a way that people talk. And I guess I wonder, going back to the Gwyneth Paltrow versus Bernie Brown, I wonder if there's a certain element of that there's, I don't think it's intentional, but a certain delivery of information that is then delivered in a way that riles people up as opposed to just being information. And that that is totally not part of the verbal stuff coming out of their mouth. It's more the rest of it. I agree. I think that could definitely be something also that like gets you more clicks, gets you more followers. And right when we look at things like that, you got to keep moving and grooving. You got to keep, you know, ahead of the marketing game. And also when we're looking at the piece that we're looking at, emotional resilience 
helps you make better decisions that align with your own personal beliefs or your philosophical beliefs, because it's not self-compassion being the path that I personally like for emotional resilience helps buffer against hearing a message that might not be true on social media and allowing you to make a more informed decision through trusting yourself instead of fearing like nothing is safe. So I have to go find the safety and I'm going to find the safety through my job or my relationship or the messages that I hear or the diet or the lifestyle instead of finding the safety on the inside. The biggest reasons why I use self-compassion with my clients who are experiencing emotional eating or disordered eating is because it's been proven over and over again that it's the antidote to shame. It increases the resilience that we need to make good decisions, to actually believe in ourselves, And it's like a better improved version of self-esteem and self-confidence. Those two things really rely on things going your way. You know, and self-compassion isn't relying on things going your way. It's saying, I can be with myself in any state, happy, hurting, confused, scared. And the premise of self-compassion is, is how would I treat a friend? And so when we're talking about the Gwyneth Paltrow thing, I always refer to that. Because if I had messed up on social media like that, I would want people to give me benefit of the doubt and say, wow, that was not productive to the conversation we're trying to have, which is empowering women to be happy and find peace in their bodies. It's just, it's not glamorous. Yeah. So I think all of this to say, totally, which is also not so easy to promote on social media when it's not glamorous. But I think all of this to say, I love that you're highlighting the self-compassion over here because we can talk about all these facts. We can talk about all these cultural shifts and whatever's happening within the community. And at the end of the day, what's most important, perhaps take this information. Maybe it's really interesting to you. Maybe it's not. Maybe it pisses you off. Maybe you're nodding in agreement. But at the end of the day, work on your own self-compassion. Work on how you might be accepting yourself, work on it on your own with your nutrition therapist, with your therapist, whoever it is, with your friends. And and that it's not so much about changing people's minds about what's going on. It's about increasing some compassion for ourselves, perhaps for other people. That would be like kind of nice if we did that. And really focusing on this from a different perspective than than we have been. It's hard to be a woman. It is. We live in a world where women make 84 cents to every dollar men make. We live in a world where weight bias and weight discrimination is not illegal in the workplace. And for every 25 pounds of weight a woman has on her body, then the average, she makes $16,000 less. Men are not penalized for the same thing. Men are not paid less for being large, for having weight on their bodies. We're living in a world where our rights are systematically being taken away. It's like everybody's sort of trying to find a way to live, be. We've gained more power, but historically women have had way less power. It wasn't until the 70s that women could have credit cards and have a mortgage. And so controlling our bodies, again, low-hanging fruit to feel like we had some amount of power in a world that doesn't give us equal rights or equal power. And here we are nitpicking women for going on diets, which is, I think, just part of the process of trying to figure out where you hold power and where you don't. 
And we're still experimenting on that. Yeah, which is such a good point. I think that there's so much more to say on that particular piece. Yeah. Just for the sake of like not having brains blow up too much. (laughs) Let's put a pin on that. Yeah. And before I let you go, can you share with our listeners where they can find you? So I'm at The Loving Diet Instagram. TheLovingDiet.com is my website. And my Facebook page is The Loving Diet. Oh, because people still do Facebook, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes. Yeah. What were you going to say? I just cut you off. I'm sorry. Uh, The Loving Diet is also the name of the book that I published uh, in 2016. So it's Loving Diet across all the platforms. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. Again, I'm hoping that people will be able to take the nuance that we were talking about and just like start thinking a little bit more curiously and critically because that's kind of all I was hoping for. Yeah. Thank you for having this conversation and your willingness to do it. You made it to the end. Thank you for listening. Every single one of your downloads means so much to me. If this conversation is leaving you wanting more, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. You'll have the opportunity to reply back directly to me over there. Can't wait to see you in your inbox.